Welcome to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? This is Deborah Hamilton. This podcast will seek to define and explain this important question from multiple points of view. We will interview owners, breeders, caregivers, defenders, advocates, champions, and educators. The mission of my podcast is to seek and foster collaborative conversations where every point of view feels heard, acknowledged, and appreciated. I look forward to you joining me on this journey toward a better understanding of each other. It is possible to have an impossible conversation. It starts with listening for common ground first. I am so glad you're here listening in with me. Now let's see what my next guest has to say. Hi, Deborah Hamilton. Why do pets matter? The podcast. And today I have one of my good new friends, Dr. Jeff Nickel. He's a veterinarian, but he's also a residency trained vet behaviorist. He continues his continuing education because pets change so much and things come up. So I'm just so grateful he had time in his busy schedule to join us here today on Why Do Pets Matter? Welcome, Jeff. Well, thank you, Deborah. And it's my pleasure to be here because I love to talk about pets and their behavior and their meaning to their people. <clears throat> you know, it's people often say, well, why did you get this type of dog? Well, um, I, you know, they're very cute and they have long hair. They don't shed or, you know, that kind of stuff. I have a small place, so I got a small dog, all legitimate reasons. But what the real reason that people keep their pets is because of behavior. And when there's a behavior disorder, um, and some of them, you know, they're not really disorders. In some cases, people have pets that do the wrong thing because you know, they're actually pretty normal, but people have made mistakes in their management. And those are really actually pretty simple to, to turn those around. People are motivated. But the, the essence of my specialty uh, is disorders of the brain. And if we were talking about people instead of other creatures, the term mental illness would apply. Uh, behavior disorders can be severe, and those are uh, the essence of a diagnostic challenge, especially because about 78% of those have other issues elsewhere in the body. So there's a lot going on physically, and the brain being the most complex organ in the body, it's a real... Uh, challenge to un unravel some of these things. But it really comes down to the commitment that people have to their pets, uh, or they wouldn't want to invest their time and energy and some expense in a, uh, in a specialist. So yeah, that, that is why you do what you do. Well, yeah. I, these, there are some people who aren't that interested in their pets, and they don't end up in my exam room. I, you, you would love to, to take care of everybody who had a problem, it takes the commitment from the pet parent. Oh, absolutely. So we always begin, why do pets matter with the question, Jeff, why do pets matter to you? I'll tell you, they've mattered to me as far back as I can recall. When I was eight years old, I convinced my parents to allow me to have a puppy. And we opened up the AKC dog book and I opened it. And the first picture was a Brittany Spaniel. And I looked at that dog and I said, that's a beautiful dog. I want one of those. And <clears throat> that's as complicated as it was. We got went out and got a Brittany Spaniel puppy. And uh, my father took me and, and my new puppy to the veterinary clinic for his first exam and, and vaccinations. And the veterinarian was not only kind, 
very clearly knowledgeable, but also he explained things well, and he was quite professional, um, and he was the owner of his veterinary hospital. He had a couple of partners, but this was uh, it was life changing, frankly. And since that day, that's all I've ever wanted to do. Yeah. That was in 1958, and mm-hmm. I that's all I still want to do is practice veterinary medicine. And in a very special way, though, because you do it, as you said, when we did the first introduction, you look at the brain and then from the brain, uh, you can help other veterinarians diagnose things that the pets might be suffering from. Tell us a little bit more about that, because pets that are grouchy or pets that are nippy or pets that are sullen or quiet, um, if they bring the vet behaviorists in to say, you know, this is this is different. Um, you're the one who works alongside their other vet to figure out what's what's what. Well, yes, and often other specialists, including surgeons and dermatologists and internists, um, very commonly, and it isn't necessarily older cats and dogs, but very commonly they can have pain, joint pain, back pain, uh, that the pet parent hasn't picked up on, and they haven't, because they haven't noticed it, they haven't mentioned it to their general practicing veterinarian, and it can be a very significant influence on a pet's reactive behavior um, when somebody goes to handle it, and the dog or the cat communicating almost entirely by body signaling and assuming that their that their leader, their person, understands canine or feline body language when, in fact, Almost nobody does. And so consequently, they are communicating to people, please don't touch me. I'm going to be painful if you do. They anticipate pain when they see someone approach and reach for them. Well, people don't notice that signaling because they don't know. They've never been taught that stuff. So they handle the pet and the pet takes a swing at them. And these are pets sometimes who might get physically punished or they might get relinquished when in fact um, nobody realized that they were painful. Uh, and it isn't just necessarily orthopedic pain. Uh, often it's skin pain, especially with cats, who when people are petting them, two or three pets and the pet turns around and nails you, oftentimes their skin is really itchy because they have allergies or they have a, what's called a cult mange. In other words, it doesn't have any obvious skin lesions. Uh, you know, a, a, just a general physical exam does not reveal it when in fact, that kind of stuff can be a very big driver of unhealthy behaviors. I had a case last week was a uh, two-year-old dog who um, just has been aggressive toward its people. And it was on follow-up when I said, you know, I've asked before about this dog's physical well-being. Let's talk a little bit more about it. She said, well, you know, you change the medication dose, the anti-anxiety medication. And, you know, the dog's appetite diminished, but then it went back to its previous level. And I said, well, what was the dog's appetite like before we started medication? Oh, it's never been very good. You know, sometimes he doesn't eat very much. Um, Sometimes he eats a little bit more. Um, Well, is there any vomiting or diarrhea? Oh, well, this dog has soft stool from time to time. Well, these are things that they didn't occur to the pet parent to mention. Um, in fact, this 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 dog owner is a is a uh, registered nurse, um, but you know, so she's medically trained. But it just didn't occur to her. Um, and the general practitioner who referred the case to me um, from uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico, close to the Mexican border, because I am the only 
specialist here. They drive all the way up about five hours. And uh, we've got to figure out, well, what the heck's really going on here? This, and then she said, you know, sometimes we can handle this dog, but if we touch the dog around its abdomen, that's when it's most likely to bite. Well, you know, it's always the veterinary behaviorist complaint that we cannot ask the patient where it hurts. Well, you know, sometimes they tell you. So is this dog got you clearly. abdominal pain? Very well could. And could that have something to do with its uh, uh, intermittently poor appetite? It turns out, looking back, that changing the anti-anxiety dosages and even starting those medications actually had no influence on the dog's appetite. That was a problem already. Now, it's very clear from the behavioral history and my observation of this dog that he really does have an anxiety-driven reactive aggression problem. But it's becoming clear now that there's something else very significant going on. So we're going to have our, our internist do, a, uh, do an x-ray study and an ultrasound evaluation and an endoscopic procedure and get some biopsies of this dog's stomach and upper intestine. And um, my bet is that we're going to find some pathology. And the good news is that in those cases, it's almost always responsive to treatment and that the outlook on this case, probably much better when we treat the internal problem in addition to the behavior problem. So, Absolutely. And, yeah. and so this is this is everybody working together. Now, it could be expensive because you said x-rays and um, ultrasounds uh, so that you can determine what's inside. But in the long run, either the dog, if it's a small dog, could live for 15 years miserable. Yeah. Um, if it's right. a big dog, 10 years miserable. Uh, right. So it might be an expense that is incredibly important to make. And if you have pet insurance, likely this might be covered by it. Sure. Uh, it's always a thought to get the pet insurance when the puppy is young. If you yep. have an, if you adopt an older dog, which we might yep. talk about if we have enough time this time, that sure. might not be an option. But, you know, it, it sometimes is the collaboration of different thought processes, behavior, and internal medicine, and observation by the owner that enables everybody to figure out, you know, the best course of action. Right. And the understanding that there are multiple factors, excuse me, multiple factors, including behavioral factors. It was uh, earlier research had shown that about 10% of the behavior cases seen by a specialist had a significant physical influence from another organ system in the body, whether it's joints and bones or the skin, intestinal tract, whatever. Well, now they've repeated that research, but they've come to learn that, yeah, 10% of our cases have a very substantial input from elsewhere in the body, but a full 78% have, to varying degrees, other physical influences. And so talk about a holistic approach. If we try to uncover everything that's going on in every organ system, not just the brain, um, because those things interrelate. I, you know, I'm sure you've read it recently, last few years, about the microbiome in the gut yep. and how populations of bacteria that normally belong there, if they're out of balance, they can stay out of balance for years. And in fact, they're found in humans that some of these really resistant um, anxiety problems and depression problems, when they do a fecal transplant, they can make a substantial difference. And these are folks who did not have stomach or intestinal symptoms. They had behavioral symptoms. And now the, the link between what goes on with the byproducts of these bacterial populations in the gut and how it affects the neurochemistry in the brain, it's becoming a lot less of a mystery. 
And so now this we're delving into this and in other species as well now. Uh, and we're going to hear a lot more about this going forward. And it isn't just the microbiome in the gut. The microbiome on our skin is a factor. Um, so uh, there's a lot of interaction between different body systems. It's fascinating, but we can start doing an even better job going forward. And I guess there better um, be a few more veterinarians who choose to make behavior uh, part of their overall look at an animal. Yeah. Because sometimes people just think they need to make the dog do what it's supposed to do. And if it bites, then just as you said at the beginning, you know, just discipline it because, you know, you shouldn't bite me when I touch your abdomen. Instead of thinking, right. hmm, they, they're young. Uh, they weren't crazy when they were little babies, but now maybe they're off kilter uh, and yeah. and having the tests done that could give them this internal map uh, to what's going on would be really helpful. You know, you, when you ask the question, why do pets bat matter? Um, <clears throat> I'm sure there's a lot of very legitimate answers to that, but you know, all of us make mistakes uh, with ourselves and with those who are close to us and including people we'll never meet again. Uh, you know, if you lose your patience with a person who's giving you service in a restaurant or on the phone. Um, and, you know, we, we sometimes believe what we think, which is a huge mistake sometimes. And we make mistakes with our management of our pets. But I'll tell you what sets pets apart is that they never leave and they always forgive. Now, if you treat a pet pretty badly, or if it's very, very prone to fear, and you're a really nice person, but you don't recognize that you need to slow down, speak very softly, and move quietly around that pet, and invite the pet to come to you rather than going and handling the pet, which in some cases scares them. But if you squat on the floor and they come to you, people don't know that stuff. It's a mistake, but people didn't know any different. All these mistakes... Pets can learn to associate fear with a particular person, or more commonly, a particular person's mannerisms or their figures of speech or their movements, but or their manner of speech, I should say. But they always forgive. And when people learn how to do things differently, then that relationship moves ahead. So why do pets matter? They matter because we can learn so much about how to treat others and ourselves from somebody who's not going to walk away and abandon us and who will forgive and give us another chance. And there aren't very many people like that. I have to pets. tell you, Jeff, that is so profound for me because um, in my practice, I do conflicts between people over animals. And if we could right. address those conflicts in the way the animals would do it, okay, I'm mad at you, or okay, I'm afraid of you. But if you provide me with recognition that what you did didn't serve me, um, I am going to forgive you. And I'm going to let you know in a way that hopefully you can see and understand that what you did hurt me or frightened me or made me um, not feel comfortable. And right. pets always forgive. You're absolutely right. They always forgive. I I often tell people it might have been better um, in in the Michael Vick case with the, with the abuse if they had had him go out uh, and talk about his arrest and everything else and the behavior that he engaged in with his dogs so that others wouldn't engage in that kind of animal fighting, animal abuse. Because unfortunately, his dogs would probably have said hello to him if they ever saw him again, because it was what they knew. And as you perfectly put it, he made a mistake 
Um, it was a terrible mistake. I'm not condoning no. it at all. Of course. But they're forgiving. Yeah. And and it would be so impactful to him to know that even though he treated them in a way that was, you know, unforgivable for the majority of the world, uh, those dogs would still give him and wouldn't, as you said, wouldn't we as humans uh, learn a lot by just watching how our dogs matriculate with us as well as other animals, but with us. Well, you know, in part, dogs as a species were evolved away from their wild forebears, the wolves, to become subservient to humans. They work for us. They are our subordinates. It is exceptionally rare for a dog to not see humans as leaders. So if Michael Vick, for example, uh, having learned what he has, and I have no reason to suspect that he has not been sincere in the changes, and if he were to encounter those same dogs again, his demeanor would be different. Um, and I'm not suggesting it, it would or should be remorseful or or maybe, but simply um, decent. And, yeah, that's right. And because the because our dogs are our subordinates, they follow our behavioral cues and they follow our emotional lead. They're so highly communicative that they are watching and reading our body signals as clear-cut communications. Um, people often say, well, my dog senses how I feel. No, he doesn't sense it. She reads it and interprets it because that's how they communicate with each other. So if a dog looks at someone and says, I see that we should be fine this time, then the dog goes, okay, we're fine this time. Yeah. And cats will do the same, although they are different socially um, and for somewhat different reasons. They will typically say, things look a little different this time. Let's, uh, let's try this now. Yeah. And that's they that's might, the second chance. They, they might wait a few. You might have to be really. Um, oh, oh, that's right. Nice with, many times before they give you the. Uh, you, you, you have to sit down work. and get small and uh, just wait for them to come and investigate you. Yeah. Uh, I, they, they, they do it for somewhat different reasons, but they will come back around. You know, it's interesting. At the beginning, before we started recording, you and I were talking about how people pick pets, and you picked a Brittany Spaniel, which, of course, I know because I show sporting dogs, is one of the most energetic uh, oh, sporting yeah. dogs on the face yeah. of the earth. It's yeah. not like, you know, a clumber. <clears throat> yeah, uh, right. You know, it's yeah. a whole different dog. Uh, yeah. So getting, getting a Brittany is, is sort of like being crazy and getting an Irish setter who's bigger than a Brittany, but almost as um, energetic, as we mm -hmm. say, when we love these fast-moving breeds. So when right. you got your Brittany... Um, was it love at first sight and you still have your Britneys or you decided that maybe um, another dog that might be a little less over the well, mountain? It was, it was actually uh, a rather tragic story. Um, back in 1958, they were called Britney Spaniels. And I think it was in the 70s that they dropped the Spaniel. Anyway, um, he uh, understanding behavior as I do now, I look back and realize that all the chewing and damage that he did to the woodwork and the house soiling were probably related to separation, distress, and anxiety. But you know, in the 50s, there wasn't much understood about behavior disorders. Um, and uh, the tragic part was uh, that my father was a very sick man, and he was brutal and um, and violent and uh, made rash decisions based on uh, his anger. And uh, my, my Brittany Spaniel Scott was the first of, uh, of a few pets 
that they simply took and uh, took to animal humane yeah. because um, because they were less than perfect. And uh, and so, uh, you know, as an adult, that's when I was able to go out and get my own pets. Um, I have right now a wonderful Border Collie. She's 12 years old. She's our second. And uh, we think Border Collies are really wonderful. I have, this is, um, this was probably the finest dog I've ever known in my life. Oh, in Airedale, my, my, my yeah. brother-in-law has them. We call them airheads. We love them. Oh yeah. Well, this guy, you notice the backpack there and yep. his backpack too. Um, he was this man's best friend. I'll tell you what. And in fact, we had such a wonderful time when we went, this was back in the eighties and, uh, I adopted or purchased him as a puppy and took him to puppy obedience class because I thought that well, my uh, a, a beagle that I had in high school that actually did get to stick around, um, I obedience trained him. So I obedience trained Juan Gomez. Juan, Juan Gomez was named uh, for a veterinary radiologist yep. named Juan Gomez. And he, um, anyway, he loved basic obedience. So we went on to intermediate and advanced classes, and he had such a wonderful time. It was before I had human children. And, you know, just like a child who shows a penchant for baseball or soccer or something, you just, well, let's just keep going. And um, and we started uh, campaigning in the obedience ring all over the Southwest. And he was actually nationally ranked one year. He was a wonderful competition dog, but it was because he loved to work for me. And we had, uh, he taught me so many things. In fact, he taught me, and I knew it at the time, he taught me some things about fatherhood. I did not have a good example as a child, but he taught me the lessons I needed. And uh, and then I uh, I got married to uh, my wife, Carolyn, in 91, and we have two wonderful sons in their mid-20s now. And I wouldn't have been able to raise them the way I did had I not been taught. You know, it's dog. amazing how, how our dogs dog. do that because my yeah. first dog was a German schnauzer and she taught me um, how to treat dogs after I had a number of missteps as a five and six-year-old. I hardly ever sell any of my Irish setters to people with small children because it just, it, it unless you are um, really observant, it's hard to keep track of your two or three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old, um, and a small puppy, and puppies get hurt or things happen. Um, but you're absolutely right. I got out of law school, bought my first Irish setter, um, and I took her to obedience. And there is a special place in my heart for Raisin uh, because she did everything. She went like your dog, um, Gomez. Did you call him Gomez or what did you call him? I called him Juan. That Juan. was his first name. <laughs> right, sorry. Uh, yeah. so, you know, Raisin like Juan went through all the levels and was happy as a clam. And you know, as a as a pet owner and a trainer, you probably knew this better than I did um, because I you know, was at, at law school and, and I listened to some trainers uh, and they, in my neck of the woods in the 80s, that's when I had Raisin, they wanted to make sure that she was a reliable dumbbell picker-upper. So yeah. they did ear pinch and mm -hmm. choking yeah. and things, right? And, yeah. and you know how you intuitively know this is not good, yeah. but you know, I was a lawyer and I went to school and people should listen to me for what I know. And this person is a right. trainer and I, I should listen. And, and I'm sure you have seen dogs who have been forced to do something and never did it again. Yeah. Oh, sure. Would never well, pick up a dumbbell again, ever. Yeah. I mean, and she loved it, but she said, you know, you've lost your mind. And when you touch that dumbbell, you are out of your mind. So I'm just never touching the dumbbell. Yeah. Right. 
I know we uh, there are so many mistakes. That, well, I mean that's life itself, isn't it? It is. I mean, but you learn retrospective vision and and learning as we go. And that's- and yeah, he forgave my mistakes. Yeah, and I learned from them because of that. Yeah, Raisin um, forgave me all my mistakes. She just figured that the dumbbell was one she was going to keep at you know Paul Lane. Yeah. You know, well, she had a classically conditioned uh, emotional God. response to it. It wasn't what she wanted. And so when people pick dogs, so um, I I want to just go back for a minute because I think it's really important for the audience to understand that, you know, you, you grew up in a family that might not have treated animals the way you treat animals now and the way you study to help others right. treat animals. So okay. it is possible for people um, to not, emerge the same as as what they've seen or to change how they see dogs if they work with a behaviorist like you well yeah needless i mean a point that i often make to my clients and and again almost all of the cases i see are pretty severely behavior disordered that's what specialists are for it's not for the easy cases although i i get an occasional simple one um and one of the points that i make to people is that there are behavior modifications we need to teach this dog healthier alternative behaviors. And um, I'm not going to be moving into their house with them and doing this. It has to be done on a day-to-day basis as consistently as possible. There are many uh, dog trainers, well-intentioned people who don't have much of any depth of training in behavior medicine and the neuro science of the whole thing, the, the physiology and the pathology of the brain. But, you know, there's nobody else around to help. So they, and so they do. Um, wait, wait. Be quiet. I'm going to cut this. Hold on. Stop. Lay down. <laughs> Junie, lay down. No, no, no. Shameful. Shameful. I know. You're keeping me safe. Okay, so just repeat that. That'd be great. So so the 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 what people often provide to pet owners is a service that pet owners really want, and that is board and train. In other words, you leave your dog with me for two weeks or four weeks, and we'll get this thing straightened out. Um, Now, I'm not going to make a blanket statement about the methods that are used in those cases, because some of them may be legitimate and and, and okay. And even if they are, though, and you have a, a pretty decent dog trainer who teaches a dog what to do differently, at their training facility or even in their home, the dog is working for that person. So you take the dog back to its real home and you tell the people, this is what you do, this is what I have taught your dog, but the dog isn't accustomed to working for them. And because the the real dog parent has not gone through the business of teaching and understanding what is being taught and why, they get it wrong. And yep. so we really have not made a difference. Um, and it's not intentional. So no. I always say when there was a big trainer in the town I used to live in and all the people in the town would buy their dog from him um, and then have him train it and then have him do doggy daycare with it. I mean, he had such a racket going and <laughs> would always you know, wonder why the dog did everything for Stu um, and never did it for them. And I said, well, because they know um, the the conduct they need to do when they're with Stu, because he gives them the signals. I said, I could give them the same signals because a lot of handlers use and and trainers use the same signals for sit and down and blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But if you don't know them and you haven't invested the time in having your dog understand how you do 
behavior speak, so to speak, um, they're not going to listen to you. They're going to say, oh, she doesn't mean it. And, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, because the dog parent has never established that type of relationship with the pet. The trainer did that. Um, so people need to go through this and they need to do a little trial and error with the guidance of somebody who says, all right, we've had some challenges on our follow-up. We're going to say, all right, this is what's happened, but we also know a little bit more about this pet's behavior. So we're going to shift things a little bit and we're going to continue to fine tune and shape the behavior and not just to the pet, but you shape the behavior of the person too. But people make the mistake sometimes of saying, well, you know, I think this is my fault. I think that this, this pet has badly behaved because of my mistakes. And the point I made is, well, of course you've made mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. Even with my training, I make mistakes. But the pet's behavior in almost all cases was something that was pretty well predisposed to it. Um, so what we need to do is treat them as an individual. Say, all right, here's how we're going to teach this pet to do something else. And you're going to be the leader. And you get to reinforce it. And you get to build your relationship. And if necessary, we can mend that relationship. And everybody comes out ahead. And I'm real happy when we see those results. You know, it's interesting, Jeff. We've talked about so many things. We've we've talked about the full body scan for behavior. Um, we've talked about the uh, microbiomes that can sometimes dictate how an animal feels. And finally, the mistakes. And I think of all of those things, um, they all work holistically together. You have to look at every single piece right. of that. Uh, and And my thought is, once you think you're a really perfect trainer and you could train any dog, uh, that's when you have to take a step back and take a look in the mirror and say, at least I do, and I think you might agree, every dog is different. Every training method is different. I can train my dog, Junie, here one way and Roxy, the nine-year-old, a totally different way because she receives information differently. He receives information differently. I mean, let's talk the, the, the obvious. It's a boy and a girl. So right there. Um, and go from there, right? Yeah. I, well, I, you know, I have two children. Uh, they had the same parents. Um, the rules were really the same, um, but they're different people. Oh, yeah. And that's because genetically, uh, certainly they have similarities, but, you know, they're different. I, there are four other children in my family of origin, and they're all very different. Well, yeah, my sister and I are very different. My sons, like your sons, because you have two boys like I do, which I sort of prefer boys. I think I would have been a terrible uh, girl mother. I just probably wouldn't have the patience, uh, but two different people. So I, I hear you. And, and if we ever figure out, like we both had those wonderful obedience dogs and then life got in the way and no other dog that I've ever owned has ever been as well-trained as Raisin. I don't know um, if right. you had another dog that was as well-trained no. as one. <laughs> no, he was by a long shot. Um, that was before I, I had a family of people and I, I had time for that. And um, since then it's been Boy Scouts and college and you know, all that stuff. And so, oh, yeah. And, uh, and at least our dogs are good citizens. I always say oh, my sure. dogs are really good citizens. They don't run up on people. They don't run up on dogs. They usually come when yeah. I call. Um, so I do that basics, but God, wasn't it great when they dropped on recall? Oh, ab- reliably yeah. every time. <laughs> and they, and getting 198s and 199s in the obedience ring. You right. You high know, in trial. We had a few high in trials. 
Oh, wonderful. Um, I've had dogs that I've bred get high in trial. Um, I have not ever trained a dog to be high in trial, but I have bred dogs that, because Irish setters really well kept secret. Um, They're pretty smart, Um, but they hide it well. They're like yeah. the Jerry Maguire's, you know, show me the money. What's in yeah. it for me? And yeah. if you make it worth my while, I will do a better job than anybody in this ring. Yeah. Uh, but if you don't, yeah, I will leave you with your pants down on so many occasions. Yeah. Yeah. No one. Uh, I got a utility title on him. He was a wonderful dog. Yeah, I know. Well, Jeff, thank you so much. This has been so incredible. We didn't get to talk about the emotional support animal information that we wanted to share with the audience. Would you come back? Because there's two things I'd love for you to talk about. Um, The breed types and the difference in breed types. (laughs) Jupiter, Jupiter, Junie, Junie, come here, Junie, Junie, come. Good job. Good job. Talk about the different breed types so that we know that, you know, when we're going for something like a Brittany or an Airedale or an Irish Setter, what you can expect from those breed types and from a behaviorist standpoint. Um, and then the emotional support animals and what they need to do. So I, I, wish, I hope you'll come back. I, I know I, my audience I, is I want you to come back. Wonderful. I'd be delighted. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. This is Deborah Hamilton, Hamilton Lawn Mediation. If you have any conflicts with animals, and of course, the Why Do Pets Matter podcast, stick around for the next episode. If you like this episode, please comment, please like, and oh my goodness, please share. Have a great day. You've been listening to the podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? This is Deborah Hamilton. Do you have a great idea? or guest or topic that you'd like me to cover, write me at hamiltonlawandmediation.com or email me at whydopetsmatterpodcast at gmail.com. Until next week, our pets do matter. Thank you for being here with me.